This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. Within the first few days, I had a call in the middle of the night from a woman who was being beaten by her husband. I found out through the newspaper that one of the members of our church had been charged with social security fraud. And within a fairly short time, there was a, a marriage that was just uh, imploding. Hey, Caleb. Hi, Richard. You're, uh, your name is Caleb Lindgren, and you've been working here for two days. Yeah, this is day two. You're our new associate editor. You have started as a person who's really going to major on the idea of ideas revolving around and consisting of... Theology. Theology. Yeah. Which is a pretty important subject to us here at Christianity Today. I hope today. so. That's, my objective is to make sure that we keep that in mind. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Yeah, well, I, I hope a lot we of, all are. But I think I'm a lot of us feel that way. Specifically, like focusing on that. Yeah, R- right. So, um, you might be familiar with a theologian that I interviewed on this week's episode of The Calling. Oh, really? His name is Peter J. Lightheart. Yes, I am. Um, more by reputation than anything, but I have read some of his good stuff. reputation. Yeah, I'll say prolific. That yeah. guy is prolific, extremely prolific. He's written a bunch of books. The latest book he wrote is. Um, Gratitude, an intellectual history mm-hmm. from Baylor Books. Yeah. And he's also like, he's blogged at First Things. He blogs quite a bit at First Things. Quite Have you bit. read his blog at First Things? Uh, I looked at it briefly the other day, and there were about three or four posts per day. It was per impressive. Per day. How do you do that? I don't know. I'm trying to think of someone did else. Did you who talk does about that. that by any chance? Yes. Is this a teaser of, all right. Yes, in fact, we did. Fantastic. He, well, the dude tuned. is a Renaissance, a Renaissance man. <laughs> That's how you say it, right? The, of course. The dude is Unless a, you're British. Peter J. Lightheart is a Renaissance man, and he's written... Renaissance. Um, Renaissance man, and he's written quite a few... Uh, he's written, written about a lot of different subjects, even in books. This is the crazy thing. Mm-hmm. It's not like he's just like blogging about this and that and the other. He's writing books about mm-hmm. all of that stuff. Yeah, that's one of the things I was most impressed with when I was looking at the blog just recently, and I had read him before, but just looking at the catalog that was on his blog in one page, which is like a couple of days worth of blog, mm-hmm. covers topics from politics to uh, virtues, sort of like gratitude, this book that he's writing, and and um, right down to like very technical theological topics. Very impressive. Yeah. The and breadth. So one thing that I love to do here at CT is to um, see how theologians apply what they talk about in their sort of academic writing and in even their popular writing, how they apply that stuff to their lives mm-hmm. and how, how it's lived out and how they came to those conclusions throughout their life. Yes. So I talked to a lot about that with Peter Lightheart. In particular, he was uh, he, he was extremely honest about like his first ministry experience, mm-hmm. his first week, which was pretty bad i think that there's actually a teaser for it at the beginning of this podcast so you you probably the listeners know what i'm getting at it was a bad experience interesting Um, but he he grew a lot from it and learned a lot from it and he talks about that he talks about failure in ministry ways that he's failed Mm. 
And um, yeah, it was good. Um, I wanted to briefly give a shout out to the Center for Pastor Theologians. They were very helpful in allowing me to interview uh, Dutter Lightheart by offering us, you know, like a room and stuff and just facilitating that. Fantastic. So um, their new conference is in 2016. That's this year. Hey, that makes we sense. are in that year. We are in the year. Um, it's in October 24th through 26th. You can register now at cptconference.com. The name of that conference this year is called, this sounds so interesting to me. You know how CT is like beautiful orthodoxy all the way? Yes. This is the name of the conference. Beauty, Order, and Mystery, the Christian Vision of Sexuality. That sounds fascinating. That's a heck of a deep dive, I think. Yeah. Uh, so that's at Calvary Memorial Church here in Chicago. Mm-hmm. I suspect I'll be there. Uh, you probably will, too. I hope so. That sounds very interesting. Your predecessor, Kevin Emmer, and I went together last year, mm-hmm. and it was fun. Well, I'm very excited about the Center for Pastor Theologians. Yeah. Ways that we can make theology matter and ways that we can recognize the work that pastors are doing as being theologians, taking our basic understanding of faith and they're applying it in day-to-day stuff. And you have guys like Peter Lightheart that are doing that in really incredible ways. Yeah. One way that we didn't talk about, he's the president of the Theopolis Institute Mm -hmm. in Birmingham, Alabama. One thing you'll hear at the beginning of this uh, interview, which drove me nuts, is that he moved to Alabama He's a Yankee originally. Uh-huh. He moved to Alabama. He had to choose a football team. And I'm just going to leave it there and let you hear what <laughs> he decided and why. It made me angry. <laughs> so you have uh, opinions about that. I have opinions about it as an Auburn fan, but more importantly, as a football fan. Uh, it's Spoken not, like a true Auburn fan. <laughs> it's not the problem. The problem is not who he chose. Who you could probably surmise. <laughs> the problem is The problem is why and in what context. Uh huh. Anyway, I'm tempted to say a slogan, um, no. but I'll refrain. <laughs> no, <laughs> don't say the slogan. <laughs> now I'm all worked up. Uh, he's also an adjunct senior fellow at New St. Andrews College, and you can check him out on Twitter, which I'll tell you about after the podcast is over. You'll have to stay tuned to hear how to find him on Twitter, I guess. All right, here he is. Is your wife an Alabama fan? No, she's a she's definitely an Auburn fan because of uh, okay family connections to Auburn. But you said, well, that's a f- all fine and good, but Alabama is <laughs> doing winning. better. They're winning, yeah. so I'm going with them. I want the national champions. I'm also a Ohio State fan uh, because I grew up in Columbus. Yeah, which is fun. Yeah. That's a fun team to be a fan of. Uh, it is and it isn't. I uh, I would say that some of the most serious spiritual crises I had as a as a kid. Yeah came from Ohio State football because <laughs> I would uh, I would pray sincerely believing I would get what I would ask yeah that Ohio State would win the Rose Bowl and they always disappointed they you know they would win the Big Ten yeah and then they get just demolished by these Pac-10 teams that, right uh, that played like professional football teams and yeah made uh, Ohio State look sluggish yeah <laughs> <laughs> so. I know that feeling <laughs> um, I have talked to you about football for a really long time now. <laughs> so I'm going to start with sort of what we, we do as our opening question, which is what, how would you, what would you describe as your calling in life? Yeah, I believe I'm called to be a theologian. Okay. Uh, I'm have, uh, I think, uh, natural gifts in writing, not, uh, something I ever taught myself to do, just something that came very readily to me and, and always has. Um, and the passion, desire to understand, Scripture and to investigate theological questions uh, that came that came somewhat later, but uh, that's uh, 
throughout my adult life, that's been the passion. The, the, I mean, I, I, I've spent 15 years in a couple of pastorates. During those times, I was always doing a good bit of writing uh, on the side. But uh, uh, so the, the pastoral, and I think the pastoral, uh, the pastoral work has uh, really lent a significant, uh, led uh, lent a certain flavor to what I do as a theologian. Yeah, um, I, I could easily have uh, gotten interested in the arcana of of uh, Christian theology or the arcana of research um, without the grounding of being in a in a church setting where right. I had to preach regularly and so on. So I'm, I'm very grateful for that. I, I don't uh, I don't think of my my self identity is not first of all pastor. It's more uh, theologian. So yeah, so theologian. Do, do you? So when you were like a young kid, what you were in Ohio at that yes, time, right? Right. So were your parents Christians? Yes, I grew up in a Lutheran family. Okay. Yeah. Um, and uh, one of my one of my early aspirations was to be a pastor. The first career goal that I remember was to be a pastor. And to be a comedian on the side, we had had a Lutheran pastor who was a a very uh, was an older man, but a very charismatic personality, very winning personality, and I wanted to be like him. And he was not only a very good pastor and teacher, but uh, had a a puckish streak in him, and would uh, you know at at, uh, church picnics he would he would uh, uh, do pranks on people. He'd put out. (laughs) He'd be the guy that put out the rubber hamburger patty inside a bun uh-huh uh, yeah plastic vomit on the on the uh, picnic he owned tables. a rubber chicken probably yeah, i'm sure he owned a rubber yeah. chicken uh <laughs> so he he was he was my um i wanted to be like him that was my first career goal did you literally want to be a vocational comedian at uh, some point that's what i said at the time I right remember think, i remember thinking that I, I don't i didn't have any conception of what it meant yeah. i guess i wanted to be a funny pastor that's what i, I that guess makes that's sense. What I had in mind that was kind of elementary years i would say that that was kind of my Desire and I, I was interested in scripture. I, I read the Bible uh, as a kid, pretty regularly. Mm-hmm. Was interested in uh, in uh, learning about the Bible. When I got to junior high, high school, I started playing basketball, and basketball became my life for six or seven years. Uh, and uh, it wasn't that I abandoned the faith or yeah. anything like that, but it. I had uh, foolish aspirations to make a career out of basketball. Mm-hmm. I had a better chance of being a comedian than I had of being <laughs> <laughs> than I had of being a basketball player. But that that occupied all my time. Um, so there was a, a period of time when that kind of lapsed. And when I went into college, it was not that was not a I didn't have that kind of any kind of clear direction. Yeah, I was studying humanities um, at a small liberal arts college, and. Uh, was really meeting my wife in college and beginning to visit the church that she was attending, and I heard uh, preaching and uh, that I had never, like I'd never heard before. Hmm. I heard the Bible uh, uh, taught and and expounded in ways I'd never heard before. And then I um, assume that preaching wasn't very funny. Uh, no, no, it wasn't. It was yeah. it was pretty uh, pretty dramatic, yeah. pretty uh, frightening, in fact. <laughs> um, and uh, the that uh, the the pastor that my uh, that I got introduced to through my my wife started loading me down with uh, theology books and so that was it was mid college that that old childhood idea of serving the church came back and came back to life yeah when you were when you were a kid and when you were a kid growing up uh, and going to church and stuff did you find yourself asking like theological questions like consciously uh, yeah. I don't. It's hard to know at this point how conscious they were. Sure. 
Um, I think so. And I think that, that one of the things that uh, uh, clicked when I uh, started visiting this the church that my wife was going to when I first met her, she was my future wife at the time, mm-hmm. was a Presbyterian church, uh, PCA church. And uh, what I, uh, I heard, part of what I heard was a Reformed theology, which I wasn't aware of at all yeah. in the Lutheran church. Um, and uh, there were, you know, there's certain emphases in Reformed theology election uh, sovereignty of God that uh, I don't think the Lutheran Church didn't disbelieve but it was not it wasn't uh, I never heard anything taught about it there's never anything taught about uh, the predestination passages in Ephesians 1 that I remember but it was what uh, I think I, I think I had had early on an inkling that this this these were themes of the Bible there were things in the Bible that I was not hearing yeah. in the Lutheran Church it's hard to know if I had that inkling at the time or if I just realized that in retrospect. Right. So but you weren't the kid in Sunday school asking like who created God. Uh, I don't think so. No, it wasn't. No. Uh, it wasn't that kind of. Uh, yeah, it wasn't that kind of uh, questions that I was asking. But there, I knew that, as I said, I read the Bible and had. Uh, I went to Christian day school, Lutheran day school, as an elementary school kid. Yeah. And so I um, got a lot of Bible and I was very interested in it. And so I was asking questions about what the Bible taught. Yeah. So the moment that you heard Reformed theology, and that was kind of when it coalesced and you started to feel like, you know, maybe I want to do this. Like maybe I really, when you, when you decided I want to do theology, I guess is how you'd put (laughs) it. Like, what is that? What does that mean vocationally? What what was your sort of next step? Right. Well, just a a couple of things. What, what that meant for me was uh, largely it was, it was, uh, to some extent, was the distinctive emphases of Reformed theology that hmm. um, made sense of things that I had suspected but had never really – nobody had clarified for me. Yeah. But I think the more important thing was uh, the way that Scripture was taught um, and the breadth of uh, the use of Scripture that uh, that uh, I found in the Presbyterian Church. Um, the first sermon that I heard in this Presbyterian Church was on Proverbs 31, and I'm visiting – the woman who will later be my wife and my the first sermon is on the Proverbs 31 woman. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't think she arranged that, but it was, it was <laughs> fortuitous. That's funny. Um, and uh, he was, the, the sermon was applying it as, you know, this is, uh, this provides instruction for wives mm-hmm. in how they're to conduct themselves in the home. And I had never, I, I don't think there was anything in the Lutheran, my Lutheran upbringing that I heard that was, wrong, but I had never heard anybody take the Bible and say, okay, this means this is how you're supposed to live now. Hmm. And I think there's certain, in certain uh, versions of Lutheran uh, life, in certain varieties, uh, there are theological obstacles to that kind of application. You know, that uh, is, there's a danger that that becomes law. Right. And you're reimposing the law rather than preaching the gospel. Um, so, but the, it was th- that practical use of scripture and also the the intellectual breadth of Reformed theology was uh, instantly appealing to me. I started reading um, uh, writers in uh, what's what's known as the Reconstructionist movement, R.J. Rushdoony, uh, uh, who has just a talking about how the how Christian faith and the Bible apply to absolutely everything. Uh, we want to think about everything in the light of what Scripture reveals, mm-hmm. and that was that was not a thought I'd ever. Uh, that's not the, I'd never heard that before. Yeah. And so the the intellectual challenge of that I was already um, by that time my 
basketball aspiration has, had kind of fizzled. I didn't play in college. And so I was already inclining more in an in intellectual academic direction mm-hmm. as a humanities major. And so just um, learning that scripture might have something to say to the things I was studying yeah. in, in school was just electrifying. That, right. That I had not the two had, the two uh, worlds of my schooling and my faith had not really linked up yet. Yeah. Yeah. And you see that I think in your work and in your writing, you have a blog on first things, which is kind of like um it's kind of like known for being at least from what I can tell, random. Like it's, <laughs> it feels totally random. Like one day you're talking about, I don't know. I, I would hesitate to give examples because I'm going to be wrong. But you, I mean, like what are two seemingly disparate subjects that you talk about that you can think of? Yeah. Well, um, I had to, just in the last couple of days, I, I did a post on uh, a Schleiermacher and his uh, endorsement of Sibelian modalism. Yeah, which is uh, I don't know what that means. It was an early Trinitarian. <laughs> it was an early Trinitarian heresy, right? And Schleiermacher is a nineteenth-century uh, uh, German liberal. Yeah, and uh, had uh, written on Sibelius, who was an advocate of a form of this Trinitarian heresy, mm-hmm. and was arguing uh, that he should be reconsidered and shouldn't have been dismissed as a heretic. Sure. So that was I had put something up about Schleiermacher today. Yesterday I put up a. Uh, a long quotation um, and discussion of uh, G.K. Chesterton yeah. on uh, Midsummer Night's Dream. Yeah, the character Nick Bottom, the Weaver, who's the the head of the little group of actors known as the Mechanicals. They're the they're the lower class characters in the play. Yeah, and they're preparing a they're preparing a play to present to uh, Theseus on his wedding night. Right uh, for celebrate his wedding, and Bottom is the the uh, Leader of that he's the one whose head gets turned to a donkey head. In the <laughs> yeah. And Chesterton yeah. has this passage where he basically says that uh, um, Nick Bottom is a greater, uh, greater figure than Hamlet. He's a he's he's a hero. If we really knew what hmm. heroism was, Nick Bottom would be a hero to us. So I thought that's kind of bizarre. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so um, I don't know if that illustrates. No, the, yeah, the that's random, a great that's a great <laughs> example. It's like it's like there are all of these things, and you almost seem to be. I think some people this happens accidentally. Like they they're into a lot of things and they apply uh, a biblical worldview to them. That's kind of how I operate. I'm into video games and I'm into you know movies and pop culture, and I'm also into the pastorate and the church and that those ideas. And so I apply those things equally to all of them. Yours seems like to me almost like a discipline. Uh, I'm I'm glad it seems that way. <laughs> So you're not intentionally <laughs> like, like branching out. It can seem like indiscipline to me. <laughs> sure. What? How so? What do you mean? Uh, I, you know, it's like a little kid that gets attracted by something shiny, and, and <laughs> yeah. instead of doing what they're supposed to be doing. Yeah. I, I guess I take some. I don't. Uh, this sounds pretentious. I don't mean this to be. Uh, I, I've concluded. Uh, I, I taught and read a lot of Augustine over the years, and uh, uh, there's a. There's a strain of Augustine that seems he's often charged with kind of a Neoplatonic mm-hmm. uh, hostility to the world and yeah. the material world. Yeah, um, I think what's going on there may I think there's some philosophical issues going on, but but I think what's going on with Augustine is he finds the world so utterly fascinating hmm. that he's worried. He knows how his heart gets drawn yeah. away from God because of the the uh, just the awesome 
fascinations that the world holds. And so he, there's, I think it's in the, it's in confessions where he gets distracted by this little spider. Mm-hmm. Um, and then rebukes himself for getting distracted. Yeah. Because <laughs> he should have his mind on God instead of the spider. So I, I, I feel like that, you know, that kind of, uh, uh, I, I feel like that's what, uh, drive some of the blog. Sometimes it's, it is research that I'm doing for a particular uh, book project and there's might be more coherence in it. But uh, part of it is that I just, I see things that look um, fascinating and I, I don't intend to spend the next year of my life studying them. I (laughs) want to share my fascination. I think I'm easily distracted, (laughs) but part of it is that I, I I have written on a, a fairly diverse set of topics uh, I've written a book on Shakespeare, written a book on Jane Austen. I've written biblical scholarship and theology. And um, there's a there's an element of wanting to – I know I'm not going to keep up with the scholarship in the areas where I, you know, things I've written on. Sure. I'm not going to keep up uh, – no way to keep up with Shakespearean scholarship. Mm-hmm. But that's an interest because I've written on it. So when I see uh, – if I happen across a book that is covering some of the Shakespeare that I've worked on, then I'm interested in what's being said about it, or a new book on Jane Austen. Yeah. Um, I get interested because it, it's it's not a specialty, but it's something I've had enough exposure to that I kind of know the landscape of uh, uh, of that topic, and I'm interested in the the recent stuff that's being said about it. Sure. So that, that's part of the part of the reason for the scatteredness of it, uh, but that's not all of it because I I blog on things that I have never written at any length about and don't intend to. Yeah. Um, also, the other thing is that I, um, the other kind of cohesion behind it is that uh, when I was in, in Idaho, I was, uh, for 10 of the years I was there, I was, a, I was a pastor. So I was preaching every week, uh, working through biblical texts and the, the blogging I was doing. And some of the r- books I wrote were based on sermon series that I did. Mm-hmm. So I, I preached through, First and Second Kings, and eventually wrote a, wrote a commentary about it. But at the same time, also teaching at a college, uh, basically a Christian theology course, and just a general Christian theology course. Yeah. It was largely biblically oriented, but not just that. So I was teaching Trinitarian theology and uh, Christology and doing kind of the systematic loci as I was going through what was mainly a Bible course. I was also teaching systematic and historical theology mm-hmm. as subordinate parts of that. So that I'm, I'm thinking about that every year because I'm going through the same material and I was also teaching uh, a Western Lit survey, one-year course that started with Homer and ended in the 20th century. All that, uh, you know, the Western literary tradition is something that I taught on for a number of years. Mm-hmm. And so, so again, the part of the part of the background is the is the variety of teaching that I I've done. This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Grieve, Breathe, Receive. Finding a Faith Strong Enough to Hold Us. Written and narrated by Pastor Steve Carter. Grieve, Breathe, Receive. Those three words became a profound mantra for Steve Carter during a season of deep healing, the kind that comes after painful trauma. Grieve, Breathe, Receive is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com audio to learn more. So when did you begin your first pastorate? Uh, I went to uh, Alabama. I, my first pastorate was in Birmingham. Okay. Uh, in uh, 1989. Okay. And I was there till 1995. Yeah. And I was in a small PCA church. How did that? How did uh, 
how what was your first day like at that <laughs> pastorate? Uh yeah. I have a youth pastor who told me about his first day. He was actually my mentor, and he told me on his first day he sat in his office for eight hours, like staring at a pencil, because he uh, just didn't know what to do. Yeah. Well, there was a lot of that. Yeah. Uh, but that was not my first day. Uh huh. Um, my first day was, but I, I don't know. I'd be exaggerating if I said this was the first day. But within the first few days, I had a call in the middle of the night from a woman who was being beaten by her husband. Wow. Who had uh, no connection to the church that I knew of, but just was randomly going through the phone book yeah. to, looking for churches for help. But she may have, she may have visited churches sometime in the past when I before I got there. Yeah. Um, within the first couple of days, uh, I found out through the newspaper that one of the members of our church had been charged with social security fraud. Oh my gosh. Um, which uh, nobody had thought to tell me that this was coming, that there were people in the church who knew <laughs> yeah. that this was coming and yeah. nobody thought to tell me before I got there. Yeah. Um, and uh, it wasn't immediate, but within uh, within a fairly short time, uh, there was uh, there was a a marriage that was just uh, uh, imploding. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it was a small church. A lot of the people in the church were related to one another. And so in that setting, one marriage goes bad and the whole church kind of gets engulfed in the thing. Yeah. And uh, so I, and I, at that point, I had I'd been to seminary, but I had been to seminary thinking, I'm going to, I'm going to pursue a career in writing, teaching theology. Okay. Uh, yeah. I wasn't thinking in terms of pastorate. Circumstances kind of led me into the pastorate uh, to take the pastoral call. What were those circumstances? A couple of things. Probably the main one actually was, um, Every other door closing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, I think the, there was an uh, the the folks at this uh, the church that I went to, folks are the church that I'm now at. Uh, some of our oldest friends um, I had known a little bit before that. I knew they needed a pastor, and there was a, an element of wanting to assist the church to to grow and to flourish. Right. They had not had a uh, anything like a full time pastor ever. Okay. They've been stumbling yeah. along with with. Uh, Pulpit supply, so I knew that I could, uh, uh, even with the limitations of my experience, I could provide some help there. Mm-hmm. But, but but a lot of it was the Lord just closed every other option for me. Yeah, yeah. So I ended up in this pastorate. I wasn't really uh, intending to be in a pastorate, and then I'm hit with uh, a, I'm in a church that um, I'm sure that this is the experience of many many pastors of small churches that seems to have have an inordinate number of of problems. You know. Yeah. The, the uh, proportion of problem per member was quite high. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so, and I, I just wasn't prepared for it. I had grown up in a pretty stable family environment. I don't know that I ever knew any any of my parents' friends who were divorced. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I didn't know that people acted this way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then, yeah. Um, Christians would act this way, and then I get into a church where there's some just some uh, really nasty behavior, uh, particularly in this uh, the marriage. Uh, collapsing, right, and uh, and th- that's the kind of thing. I'd go back to my original comment. I think that was that's the kind of experience that I think has contributed a lot to providing a certain kind of uh, direction or flavor to my theological work. Yeah, because uh, I I do know I'm, I'm not a I'm not been like a 30, 40 year pastor like some people, but I do know uh, what pastoral care looks like in crisis situations. I've been through that, and I have. Uh, uh, some feel for that. I don't say that I'm good at solving things, but mm-hmm. I do have some feel for what that means and try to, I'm wanting to provide, th- I'm thinking when I'm writing commentaries, for example, uh, I'm thinking, uh, 
how is a pastor going to be able to preach this text? How can I help a pastor preach this text? And how can I help him see how it can be edifying to somebody who's got some kind of life crisis that they're going through? Yeah. Yeah. So do you feel like you're, you said you weren't prepared for that. Do you think, is it that seminary did a bad job of you, of preparing you for that? Or was it that seminary wasn't designed to prepare for you for that? Or just that you didn't get quite enough preparation or weren't paying attention during that class or something? Yeah. It's a, it's a combination of things for me. Yeah. Um, I, I did a, I said my, my intention going to seminary was not to go into pastorate, a pastoral ministry. Right. Yeah. So the, the courses I took were mainly theological courses, yeah. and I didn't take the, uh, much of the practical theology. I did take some. I went to Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia, okay. and I did audit some of the counseling courses, which were really good and benefited me. Yeah, um, as I went into a pastorate, but I didn't take a lot of the pastoral theology courses. So that yeah. was that was part of it. Um, I also, again, because of my what I was intending to do, I didn't arrange to do a series of internships. I had not been in a setting where I was an assistant pastor. Sure. Uh, I, the first pastor I had, I was the guy in charge, uh, a solo pastor. It, it was a, a small church, but still, I had I really had no ex- business being in that kind of leadership position. <laughs> yeah. Uh, with the uh, lack of experience that I had and, in that role as a pastor. Yeah, just as a, a senior pastor, uh, the yeah. solo pastor. Yeah. At a church of any size. How I old no, were you? Uh, I was thirty by the time I. I, I took the by the time I was ordained I was thirty. Interesting, but yeah. I had spent my life in school, yeah, and in other sorts of. Uh, I I worked for a couple of years out of seminary at a uh, kind of study center and did a lot of writing. Mm-hmm. So I'd been in that kind of setting. Yeah, um, I had not been in any kind of leadership role. Yeah, and then I was suddenly thrust into this and um, ill prepared for it. Right. So what did you? What mistakes do you think you made? I mean. Obviously not all of them, but I mean, yeah. were there, are there things that stand out that you like wish you could have done differently? Yeah, I think it, I think there are specific things uh, that uh, I could I could point to mm-hmm. if I I would have to reconstruct some of the scenarios, right? <laughs> um, but I think that the general thing this this is something that I've realized both in both pastors. I think that the general flaws in my pastoral care have had to do with. Um, Basic vices, sins, uh, and I think the two main ones are are fear and sloth. Yeah, yeah. Um, I in the, my first pastor, they have this really intense family situation, mm-hmm. and I didn't, I, I had not encountered anything like that before, and I was, it frightened me, and I was, I didn't know what to say, I didn't know how to handle it. I had a, I had a. Uh, a conviction that I was supposed to fix it somehow because I was I was a pastor. <laughs> yeah, but um, I didn't really have much of a much of a sense of how to do that, and I was I was just frightened by it. Yeah, um, and then I was, uh, the fear and the sloth kind of go together because I'm frightened by it, and I just want it to go away. Yeah, I don't want to do the hard work. Yeah, that it takes to to confront uh, bad behavior and to and confront it in a way that would actually address it. Yeah. So I think those are those are the two recurring. So you spent a long time probably thinking about what to do. Yeah, I'm not sure. I spent. Uh, I did have. Uh, fortunately, had some elders who were. I think uh, I was very blessed to have elders who were willing to wade into things. Yeah. And uh, and to help. Yeah. I don't. I don't know that it was. Uh, um, 
it was so much uh, planning and thinking a lot. It's it was just uh, I, I was driven by anxiety in the way that I reacted. To oh, things. okay, and, yeah, and and. Again, by the wish that it would just all go away. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> I think the other thing that probably the other basic flaw uh, was uh, a form of unbelief. Mm-hmm. I had the sense that if I was, if there was going to be a solution, I had to provide it. I was the one who was, uh, who had to be the savior of this marriage. Yeah. And I had the sense of failure if it was, it, it didn't, uh, it didn't survive. And I had that sense of kind of personal failure that I I was supposed to do something and it it uh, fell apart. Yeah. Um, but I think that the the unbelief I think in that is that I I've come to realize that uh, Jesus is the head of his church. <laughs> Jesus is the shepherd of his people. Yeah. And a minister, whatever a, a, a pastor has to do things and say things and sometimes do and say things that are very difficult to do and say. Um, say them in very tense. Uh, contested settings uh, but it's not really his job to solve anything mm-hmm. can't I yeah. mean he's just another needy sinner like the people he's trying to serve yeah and it's uh, I, I think I was doing a lot of what I was trying to do out of out, out of anxiety more than out of confidence that the Lord was going to do something through me to to uh, uh, to uh, resolve it one way or the other so it was, you know, and felt a burden that was an uh, I shouldn't have felt, right? Um, because it, it's not my church. <laughs> Did you? So it's interesting to me that a, you say your calling was a theologian. You, it seems like you never felt a call, a, a direct call to be in the pastorate, right? Yeah. Uh, a lot of people, a lot of people are of the opinion, <laughs> right, that if you're not, if you can think of anything else you would <laughs> rather do than go into the pastorate. You shouldn't do it. Yeah. Did you start? I mean, do you feel in retrospect that that's true, or? Uh, no, and I, I guess I'm, you know, I'm probably uh, giving a somewhat distorted picture of uh, my own uh, sense. sense of call yeah. to the pastorate, um, emphasizing the the negative side. I guess the if I can uh, indulge in a little self citation, it, it's been a, <laughs> a a number of years ago. I came across the um, patristic tradition. Mm-hmm. Of uh, reluctant ordinations, yeah, and uh, so in some cases, uh, you know, the stories are. You know, I think it's Gregory the Great who's uh, elected as Bishop of Rome. Yeah, I can't find him because he fled. <laughs> yeah, out to the woods yeah. and had to be <laughs> had to be forcibly brought back. Right. O- almost every one of the church fathers has a story like that where they they were very reluctant to take. They can think that, of seven other things yeah, they'd rather do. That, 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 <laughs> yeah. And I think it's in the Coptic Church that at least at one time, I don't know if this is true anymore, I think it's at the Coptic Church that uh, that led to a tradition of a priest coming to ordination in chains uh, as a symbol of the fact that he was not seeking this office for himself. Yeah. Uh, the Lord was compelling him into the this position. So that was reassuring to me that I, you know, I had some reluctance. Uh, it wasn't something that I was – Passionately, I got to do this, but realizing that that's a, that was the experience of many uh, in previous uh, the previous ages of the church. And the other thing is, I, um, I I do think that over time I came to a sense of being in the place of uh, you know, and not I guess I say over time. It, I don't think it was a long time. I came to the sense that this is where the Lord wants me. Uh, it's not uh, necessarily uh, this is exactly what I want to do, mm-hmm. but I'm confident that the Lord wants me here. Yeah. Um, and there's certain, you know, 
I, I think every, probably every, um, well, I guess there are, there are unusual pastors who just love the intense counseling kinds of situations. They they just live for the next uh, <laughs> crisis so they can be in the middle of that. That's terrible. That's not me. I don't know if yeah. there's anybody like that. <laughs> I don't know anyone like that. <laughs> but, um, you know, a lot of the pastors I know, the thing that they, that really energizes them is the public ministry right. uh, of the word and sacrament. And um, I, I know when I'm ministering the word and sacrament to a, to a congregation that I'm at the, you're at the center of the world. This is, this is the place where God does his work. Mm-hmm. And um, I want to, uh, I became to, uh, I've come to the point where I love being there. I'm not in a pastoral uh, role right now. I'm in a, a staff as a teacher at the church in yeah. Birmingham. Your title at that church is um, just guess, teacher? Right. Okay. Yeah. Not just teacher, but teacher. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I love being at that spot where um, God has commissioned me to take this word and apply it to these people. Right. Not just to write kind of generic theology for some unknown reader, but I've got this word for this people in these circumstances, and I need to say, uh, I need to be God's spokesman for them. Mm-hmm. And um, and I'm in. I have the privilege of inviting them to the Lord's table and presiding as uh, as Jesus' servant in in uh, serving His people at His table. Yeah. Um, and there's you know there's no greater privilege than that. So I I love I love being there. Yeah. Um, and I came to I think my second pastor. I'm much better. Not not I wouldn't say I was wholly successful, but I was much better at handling the different crisis situation. I was much less fearful. Mm. I was a good bit older. Um, what age was this? Um, I started my first pastor at 30. By the time I got my second one, I was in my early 40s. Okay. So that made a huge difference. And I'd been through the experience of the first pastor, which was, I, I guess in some ways it, it kind of gives you a, it's kind of a toughness, but I, I don't mean that to mean that I'm indifferent or unsympathetic. Sure. There's a, I was just much more willing to speak my mind and much less fearful of situations. Right. Um, I think I could have been that in my earlier one, if I had had more experience leading up to it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Was there a moment where you, I kind of get the sense the answer is complicated or maybe even impossible. To, maybe this is impossible to answer, but is there a moment where you doubted either? I mean, maybe these, these go hand in hand. Did you ever doubt your faith? Did you ever come to a moment where you thought, I, I am not sure I even believe this. Maybe it was early in life or. Yeah. Only those Ohio State football games. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. Uh, yeah, I'd honestly say no. Yeah. Uh, that's that's not been... Was yeah. there a moment where it solidified? Where you feel like either... For me, there was a moment where I felt like I should be doubting my faith, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Like there was a lot going on where I could have been like, what, what does this mean? And I, And maybe I don't want to believe in this, and I just couldn't go there. Yeah. Was there a moment like that? Um, no, I don't. I don't think so. Um, and I'm, I'm not sure. Um, but I would say there are, there are moments when it's solidified. I think there have been moments when things solidified, and um, you know, there's yeah. a kind of surge forward in my my uh, confidence. But I, I, it wasn't. It wasn't a surge forward that it was uh, at the at the tail end of a series of doubts. Sure, uh, that's not been my experience. Um, and I, and I don't know if this is if this is uh, I don't know if this is a complete explanation. I don't know if there is an explanation for that other than uh, God's kindness. Yeah. But um, I, I do think that I I had the benefit of being even before my first pastorate. I had been inoculated somewhat 
to, um, you know, I mentioned my fear and my, I don't know how to deal with these crisis situations. But the idea that I was going to have to suffer in a pastorate was not unexpected. Yeah. Um, you know, I had been reading and uh, stu- studying, studying certain threads of uh, biblical, you know, of the Bible and of uh, theology mm-hmm. that uh, put strength and weakness, bearing the cross with Jesus, and doing that in the pastoral setting at, at, uh, in a central, central place. So it wasn't, that wasn't surprising to me that I would have troubles. Yeah. Um, the intensity of them kind of overwhelmed me. Mm-hmm. Um, it didn't keep me from being afraid, but the fact that I was having difficult times was not a shock to me. Yeah, you probably interacted <clears throat> with a lot of people having these moments of disbelief, right? This these moments where it was hard for them to understand. Yeah, it, it was that was it hard for you to empathize with that, or was it hard for you to interact with that? It may be. Um, that's a good question. I'm. Um, yeah, it, it may be that I don't have uh, I don't have much empathy for that hmm. situation. I guess uh, my you know this sounds kind of imperious, I guess. <clears throat> but um, if and when people would come to me and say, I'm, you know, I just don't know uh, who God is, where I am, I don't know if He loves me. My response generally is to is fairly again. It sounds kind of imperious and. Hope it's done. Uh, hope it's. I hope it's not. Uh, just repeat the gospel to them. Yeah. Remind them that they aren't outsiders to that gospel. Mm-hmm. And uh, for in in my setting, the the way that I would remind them is by saying, uh, God put His mark on you. He claimed you. You wear His name in baptism. That's an objective fact about you. Yeah. And uh, what you need to do is just trust that the God who claimed you marked you in baptism is going to take care of you. I mean, I, that's not the only thing I would say. Try to, if they had doubts on the basis of, you know, they have intellectual doubts, I try to address those. Right. Um, but I found that in, in pastoral counseling, I would mostly return them uh, to the gospel. Yeah. Just remind them of the gospel. Yeah. There's certain things that they have to do, but that's always in the context of remember who you are. Remember yeah. what God has done for you. Trust him. Trust that he's going to see it through. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So right now you are the president of the. Is it Theophilus? Theopolis. Theopolis. The Theopolis. 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 Yeah. <laughs> what you said. That institute. Yeah. Theopolis in Birmingham. Yes. So describe what that's what that is. What yeah. you do. Yeah. The Theopolis Institute started um, three years ago. We're in our th- we're on our third year of operation. Mm-hmm. We're a pastoral training leadership training institute. Uh, so far, what we've been doing is a, a, we do a, a week-long intensive courses for pastors and aspiring pastors, uh, mainly on biblical and liturgical theology. It's seminary-level uh, instruction, mm-hmm. but uh, we're, we're trying to – and we're, we don't not intending to replace seminary training. We're trying to uh, supplement what a student gets in seminary in a couple of ways. Okay. We're, we're in uh, Reformed churches coming out of the Reformed tradition, and in our world, uh, liturgical theology is just not a major focus of attention. We think that the revival of uh, liturgy is one of the crucial uh, issues for the church's future. So that's one thing. The other part is uh, every seminary teaches Bible, but uh, our experience has been that uh, seminaries tend to give you the tools for Bible study and Bible research, but don't teach the Bible 
uh, directly as much. They're, they give, right. introduce you to biblical scholarship. You learn the languages, given the limitations of time and other things that they have to cover. Yeah, They don't cover every book of the Bible, for example. I didn't, in seminary, I didn't right. learn about every book of the Bible. So our aim is to, the students are going to be working on the Bible. Sure. And so it's going to be Bible liturgy. And then the other thing that we are trying to supplement is uh, just the practical experience. Having an internship as part of the program is part of that. Plus, we're, we're going to uh, have regular visitations from uh, pastors, uh, professionals, journalists, artists, other people from the local area, people who run ministries, yeah. to come in and talk to our students, uh, talk to our students about what they do, uh, what kinds of uh, opportunities they have to uh, minister. I think the, one of the complaints I've heard from lay Christians is that their pastors don't really have a strong sense of the challenges that they have in their day-to-day work life. Yeah. They don't really understand what what they have to deal with and how how they can how they can serve Christ as a lawyer, a doctor or a businessman. Right. And so um, by bringing these people in to talk to our students it's an an effort to give them get them thinking about that uh while they're in training so that yeah. they get a sense of you know what what does it mean to be a Christian attorney and how can I I'm going to have attorneys in my church what can I learn from this attorney that will be beneficial to people I'm going to serve in the future. That's interesting. There's a lot of opinions out there about how a pastor should be prepared for the ministry. What's interesting to me talking to you is you seem to be uh, allowing for all sorts of different ways to get into the ministry. It seems like in some ways, like um, maybe you go to seminary and then maybe you go into this program. Mm-hmm. Um, or maybe you go straight out of seminary and this other thing, but you have an open mind towards yeah. ideas. I mean, do you have in mind like certain things you feel like, so like if you, you ask me, every pastor should work a real job. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Should have like a real job so they know what it's like to have a real job, quote yeah. unquote, real yeah. job. Yeah. Is that something like you think about? Is there some sort of a gauntlet you want to throw down and say every pastor <laughs> should do this before they start? Yeah, I'm I'm reluctant to make anything like that a a rule. Sure, I do think that there's enormous value in pastors having life experience mm-hmm. prior to entering the ministry and work experience outside uh, the church and outside uh, school. Yeah. And part of that is coming from the kinds of things I was talking about earlier about my own experience. Uh, I know that school didn't prepare me for the things I would have to do as a pastor. Yeah, so I think that there's some real value in that. You know, in um, in a business setting, in certain kinds of business settings. You learn leadership. You learn how to organize people and to motivate people to get the job done. Right. Um, some of the best pastors I know are uh, were in the military, hmm. and they learned leadership by ordering people around. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and it doesn't translate directly into church life, but there are things that they learned in those in those settings that um, you can't get in a school setting. So I think there's some great value in that. I think as far as the a variety of different pathways into the, into the pastorate. I think that's just the reality of what we're, where we are in pastoral training right yeah. now. Uh, there are uh, non-seminary uh, options mm-hmm. now that there weren't before, yeah. online options. And a lot of the young men I know who are aspiring to be pastors are not in a position to take several years off of their life and spend it in a seminary. Right. They, they have families. They have jobs. They need to support a, support their kids. And they're not – they're not uh, waiting to get that life started until after they've finished their training. Mm-hmm. And yet they do aspire to be pastors. And they're, they're people who would be good pastors 
because they do have some, they would have some life experience. So part of the idea of Theopolis is how do we provide some intensive, hands-on personal training to people who are taking these non-traditional routes into ministry. So somebody who's doing his seminary online, he can get a lot online. And I, I think there's a there's great benefits to online programs. There's certain things you can't get. Right. And we're hoping that Theopolis will attract students who are patching together seminary training. Sure. Or the other part of the, the other part of the issue for a lot of students is a sheer financial problem. You know, the I don't know what the numbers are exactly, but uh, the amount of debt that the average seminary student mm-hmm. comes out with is pretty high. Yeah. And he's not in typically not in a position to recoup that. You yeah. know, it's not like he's going into a medical practice or <laughs> becoming a lawyer and yeah. going to make a bunch of money that he can pay it off. Yeah. He's uh, possibly going into a very low pay yeah. pastoral position. And then he's got this burden of debt hanging over him that it's going to be very difficult to pay off. So yeah, I, we don't, we don't see ourselves replacing seminary, but we do know, we know a lot of people are pursuing uh, leadership in the church through these various non-traditional ways. And we're hoping that uh, we can serve them by providing a, Again, personalized, intense, a focus on what we think of as the essentials, scripture and liturgy. All right, you've been listening to The Calling. You can follow Peter Lightheart on Twitter. That's P Lightheart. That's L E I T H A R T. Remember to rate and review the show on iTunes. That helps us a whole lot. We really appreciate it. Calling is produced by Cray Allred. Theme music is by Lee Rosevere, used under Creative Commons 4.0. This episode was brought to you in part by the Table Podcast at Dallas Theological Seminary. Listen to rotating hosts discuss issues of God and culture to demonstrate theology's relevance in everyday life. Find it on your podcast app. For videos and more, visit dts.edu podcast.